Trusting in the authority of Christ. Uh, Acts 22, you know, I read some commentaries about it. One that I had to completely dismiss, and, and that was that um, Paul was, was told don't go there. And it was Paul's own, um, he went out there or went to Jerusalem on his own against the words of Christ, and therefore he's being punished for this. I don't buy into that one. Uh, I give the guy some credit. He tried to back up what he was saying. He's probably far more educated in the word than I am, so we'll give him some, some slack. Um, and there could be an angle to teach about that. Could be an angle to teach the opposite. What we grab from Scripture is what the Spirit leads us to. And the Spirit is leading me to seeing the authorities that are in this passage in Acts 22, 1 through 29. Go skip the last verse. Um, I have a cap, not 30 verses, Kelly, just no more than 30. So 29 is where we're going to stop. You know, when we think of authority, we have different views of authority. People who have authority over us, authority that we have, um, on what grounds do we have authority. Two two key ones that, that I think about. There's the authority of ruling over another. You know, the, the, a warden has authority over the inmates. There's also an authority of expertise, the world's leading authority on a subject, that sort. One view isn't wrong over the other view, and, and sometimes they're, they're both being used uh, to go back to that, that uh, or to use the example of a judge in a courtroom. Now this judge has authority over what happens during the trial. He can overrule things, he can, um, he can call the attorneys up to his bench and have a sidebar. Uh, he has rule over others in that position. And just the fact that he wears the gown that he does means he's also somewhat of an expert on trial law. Makes sense. Uh, so he's got both the the authority of expertise and the authority of ruling over something at the same time. Uh, likewise, maybe a, a school teacher, same thing. They have authority over the, well, hopefully, they have authority over the class, the, the room, they're the boss, so to speak, and they also have authority as an expert in the subject they're teaching. Both of those are big hopes. Uh, you know, the the warden or a, a public school teacher, their authority doesn't come from themselves. It's granted. A, a judge is elected. A school teacher had to go to uh, school to become an authority on subject matter and how to teach, and they're credentialed. You know, so their authority is coming from the state. The the authority of ruling over seems to always come from another. Now that. Maybe you could argue, it's, yeah, but not for a dictator or not for a bully. They, don't have, they, they took that authority on themselves. But if you think that authority through, it could be taken from them as easily as they took it. Okay. So their authority isn't really defined as coming from themselves. The, um, the way we use authority, we also have to be careful about. There's two things I think that are required. There's uh, the expertise size, the truth. You've got to know the truth. Okay? Then there's the, the trusting side, that if the audience or the people that you're having authority over at the time don't trust you, your authority kind of goes out the window with it. Okay? The, an example of that would be this incredible doctor that just learned even knows beyond everything that he learned. He just is the absolute world's leading authority on something, but has no bedside manner. You could take a lesser doctor who knows a lot, but not as much, but if he has the proper bedside manner, he has the trust of the patient. And because he has the trust of the patient, that patient's gonna listen to him and perhaps adhere to what the doctor's recommending, and that doctor becomes far more effective than the world's renowned authority. Okay, so trust and expertise, these are two pieces that are needed in a third authority. 
So our passage today, Acts 22, deals with actually quite a few types of authority. But keep that in mind about the expertise. You don't own your own authority and trust. Trusting Jesus is going to be key to this. Jesus has the expertise. He's a creator of everything that we see. You know, so he can rule over, and nobody can take that authority from him. He is the boss of all authorities. Um, I'm going to read, and you can stand if you can or wish to, as we read verse 1 through 29 of chapter 22. And if you want to follow along in the Word and test everything that I say against that Word, because that's what I'm going to do, but you didn't bring a Bible, we have them in the back, through the doors, immediate right, right there. They're black. You can grab one. I don't think we have any extra spectacles if you're like me and you have a hard time reading the really small print that's in those Bibles in the back. But here we go. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when he heard that, or when they heard that, and he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For one of you, or excuse me, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know what in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him, when they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow! from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The 
tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray. Lord God, you have much to say in so few words. And the words alone would be difficult to understand if not for your spirit. The words would be difficult to teach without your spirit. So we're praying for your spirit, Lord, to illuminate your scripture, to give meaning to the words that we read, to be that vehicle from our brain to our hearts, to set it deep into us what it is you would have us do or say or act on from these very words. Lord, we're looking for application. We're looking for ways that you're calling us to be your servants. Lord, I myself get nervous in front of crowds, but you can calm those nerves. Your spirit, Lord, is what will work in me for this audience to hear what I teach. Lord, when I teach falsely, just mute my tongue. And Lord, when people misapply, deafen their ears to the words. If they're wrong, do not let them be heard. If they're right, let them be just driving forces of our lives. Lord, we pray these things knowing your spirit is present. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ's authority is the means by which all other authority is used to protect and increase the church. Say that again. Christ's authority is the means by which all other authority is used to protect and increase the church. Christ's authority protects and increases the church. You know, I have alternate words. Protect is defend. Christ will defend his church. And he'll use his authority to do so. He'll also, instead of increase, you could think of in terms of advance. His church is always advancing. And it's by his authority that it does this. And if that sounds to you like Christ is going to make it easy, you're listening wrong. He, he, he's not necessarily. We had a couple weeks ago Tim teaching chapter 21 and the second half of it was all about it's not going to be easy. We should expect hardships in this. But he is going to make sure it's successful. And he's going to use who he will and what he will to do this. So I'm not preaching easy, but I am preaching success. Christ will have his way, but he will not necessarily make it easy. And then as we look at this passage, you'll see authority intertwined in different ways. Um, and I'll try and point those out when I leave the, the outline a little bit. But I see his authority being used in three ways. That Paul leans on three authorities as he gives his defense to this crowd. First in verses 1 through 5, he appeals to his authority as a Jew. The same as his audience. His audience is Jewish and he appeals to them as a Jew. The second and where I hope I spend most of my time because it is probably the, not probably, it is the most important, is his authority of Christ. Paul calls on the authority of Christ to his own defense. And lastly, he appeals as his authority as a Roman. Paul is a Roman citizen. It's a Roman government that's in charge. So it makes every sense. All right, But he doesn't do these things without Christ. Christ appears in all three authorities. The Jew, simple one, the Christian, and even the Roman. You'll see Christ at work in all three authorities. So let's start with the authority of a Jew. In verses 1 and 2, even the, the verse from chapter 21, the very end, the verses at the end, 
Um, Paul is given permission to speak to the crowd. And when I first came up here, I went like this, and you all sat down. Mostly you sat down because you knew it was time to sit down. But that one motion I can make, which gives you the indicator, hey, it's okay, it's time to sit down. And Paul waved his hand to this crowd, and they were calmed. What? Really? So you got a whole bunch of people that are just got finished beating on you, and then the tribune kind of separates you from them, but they're still all revved up, and they go quiet. How does that happen? Well, it could have been because the tribune was standing there, and he has all this authority, and could say, hey, guys, I'm going to come in and get you guys if you don't let this man speak. But I don't think that was it. They were too revved up. They were already afraid of Roman authority, yet they were still getting all jacked up against Paul. He appealed to them as one of them. He spoke in the Hebrew language. That would have been attention-grabbing. The wave of the hand didn't do it. The fact that he wasn't this outsider Gentile, that he was actually also a Jew, would have made a difference. May not have made all the difference, but it'd be enough for them to say, all right, let's give it a second. Let's listen to this guy. Let's see what he has to say. And then what I think is going on is that Christ wants him to be heard. Christ is going to make sure that he's going to be heard, and he uses his authority to hush the crowd. And hopefully, what, he has, what Paul has to say, and what the crowd can hear, is going to make a difference. We don't have a record that X amount of people were saved and followed the way that day, but I got to think that if this crowd was big enough, there was somebody in there that took those words home and thought about it. What is with this man? What is it he's willing to risk his life on to tell us? Maybe I ought to hear him. So Paul starts this defense. It's called a defense. But what's the defense of? Is defending Paul himself? Or is Paul defending Christ? He starts his defense... talking about how he persecuted Christians. Again, he's one of them. He's being persecuted right now. He's being beaten as a Christian, not as just some stranger. So he is being persecuted big time, and that's how he leads out his defense. I persecuted Jews. What's up with that? Is he giving them permission? I mean, it's like, hey, it's okay to persecute Jews. I did it. Now you're doing it. Try not to do it to me. But what kind of defense is that? He, and, and Paul says that he was persecuting the way because he thought it was blasphemous against God. And he says it's just like you guys are doing. As though this is a good thing. And it is a good thing that you would defend God the best you can on what you know. But Paul has to go a little further in his defense and give them a reason to know what to defend, okay? It's almost like Paul's trying to appease the crowd with his own personal struggles with Jesus. It's like, I struggled with Jesus. I understand why you're struggling with Jesus. But it's not about just appeasing a crowd. In verse 4, he tells how he was, and it's one of these little subplot uh, authorities, he persecuted under the authority of the high priests and elders. They even gave him letters. So he had the authority. He was carrying the badge. Remember the Westerns you used to watch? Maybe you still watch, I love them. But whether the sheriff was a good sheriff or a bad sheriff, he had that star on his chest. That star was given to him by somebody, and that's where his authority came from. It was all about the badge, whether he had the authority or not. Paul had these letters from the elders of of Jerusalem that said, hey, go ahead and do these things. He had the letters for authority, but Paul let go of the letters. He took off the badge. 
So now he does have to give a defense. That wasn't enough. He couldn't just end it there. And if you're thinking that Paul was just giving the crowd what they wanted to hear so they stopped beating him, then you don't know enough about Paul. You know, just just hold on to your seats. We're going to put it in second gear right here. Paul's about to go into action. And that starts out with verse 6. He uh, starts this section of the authority of a Christian. The authority of a Jew was very simple. He, he, it was very clear. He had those letters of authority. He was allowed to persecute. This one's a little tougher. To, he tells a very long story to try and make the, the Jews, the crowd, understand where he's coming from as a Christian. He tells about his intervention with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Acts 9 is where you can read more about that. It's so difficult when you have another part of Scripture being a strong piece of what you're going to teach. It's difficult not to go there and preach Acts 9, but I won't. Um, But I will ask you guys, whether it's in a small group study, personal study, meditation, however you will, to go into Acts 9 and take a look and see what it has to say. It's a lot more in-depth than what Paul even offers in his defense and in his testimony. And it's, it's really rich. It's really good. Uh, it, you're going to love it. And I'm not going to cover it. Um, but I will tell you, it, it is the beginning of Paul's ministry. You know, it is... It is everything that Paul became after meeting Christ. So it's, it's fantastic. You need to get into it. Um, but what Paul does do in this defense is he tells about his personal experience with Christ. And that's what he decides to share with the Jews. And there's a lesson we can take away from that. What the Bible teaches us about Paul is that he was always defending Christ. He was not ever boasting on his own. Yet he's always talking about himself. (laughs) But he was talking about himself. He was boasting even, not to his own glory, but to the glory of God. Okay? God loves a good boast. He really does. It's all over Scripture. And all the passages that talk about boast can be summed up by one, 2 Corinthians 10, 17, I believe. And it says that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So it's okay. It's okay for you to boast. And it's okay for you to get personal and just keep it about the Lord. He doesn't talk about, Paul doesn't talk about himself to boast about himself. He does it to connect with the people. He wants to make it personal. You too can take that as a mini application. Make it personal. You are the world's leading authority on what you think. Bingo. Whatever it is, nobody else can quite think or quite say what you're thinking other than you. They can believe they know what you're thinking. I got caught telling a, one of my workmates, you know, you're always thinking that. He didn't let me finish. It didn't matter what was coming after that. He just blurted out, don't tell me what I think. And he was right, and I've never done it again. So it seems to me you're thinking, <laughs> might be the way I'll put it. So I didn't give it up, but, but those were wise words that I needed to hear and listen to, and they only happened like a year ago. So I'm 60 three years into it before I figured out how to give somebody credit for what they think. You're the world's leading expert on what you think. Share from that. If you're not a super confident person and you think, I can't share the gospel, it's like, what do you think about the gospel? You're an expert. Share it. It'll work. That authority that you're going to share is not of your own. It'll be Christ's authority that will come out. 
Verses 12 through 15 are uh, Paul's relationship, I guess you would call it, with Ananias. And he points out that Ananias was a devout man uh, according to the law. So he was a Jew. And that would be not lost on the Jews that he was talking to. Paul is appealing to them that if they can't believe his testimony, then he'll give them others to vouch for it or for him, for the truth that he's speaking. This is another one of those minor authority appeals. Paul appeals to the authority of the good standing of Ananias. And what did Ananias say? Paul was told to be baptized and wash away his sins in Christ. Paul brings this time up, the time that he had with Ananias, with two important points. First is Paul being told to be baptized. Uh, that he was going to be chosen to be a prophet and that he will witness Christ. Okay, so he's kind of getting that assignment. You're going to be a prophet. You're going to hear directly from the Lord and you're going to minister. You're going to share this word. The second was to hurry and be baptized. It's an urgency demand to get to work. Wash away your sins. Be baptized to wash away your sins. But like, do it now. And then get out there and do what you're appointed to do. This urgency is, is kind of a big thing. There's an urgency to following the gospel. When you're saved, when Christ decides he's going to save you, and it's Christ who's going to do the saving, he's doing it for a purpose. And you will have a job to do, all of us will have a different job to do, but it's urgent that it get done. The gospel life is an urgent life. The, what Christ doesn't do is save a soul and tell that soul, sit in the back until you're ready. And... I don't know, you'll probably feel like it's the right time. And when you do, why don't you go ahead and speak about me? No, he wants you to live that gospel life immediately. That gospel has an influence on your life right away. It's urgent. His commission was immediate. You know, what's verse 15 and 16 says... For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When you're saved, it's the beginning of your sanctification. Okay, the salvation is the first step of your sanctification. Your salvation is throughout. Up until the time that you're in the presence of Jesus again, you will constantly be increasing in your sanctification or through your salvation. And it starts in a moment. The moment you're saved, you are going forward in this gospel life. You are being sanctified. Don't resist it. Grab onto it. Take the ride with Jesus. It's, it's well worth it. And it's what he calls you to do. It's the purpose for which you were called. Back to uh, the scripture. Uh, verses 17 and 18 is Paul going into this trance, being told in Jerusalem, get out of here. It's going to be dangerous. And let's pause to remember where Paul is when he's sharing this part. I mean, he's sharing to the crowd, and he's saying, you're going to be persecuted when you go back to Jerusalem. And he's in Jerusalem, and he's being persecuted. It almost sounds like that permission thing. But you wonder, is that a smart thing for you to be doing right now, Paul? And Paul doesn't care. He is not smart by the world's standards. Paul is smart by Christ's standards, by heavenly standards. He's going to depend on heaven, not on the world. 
Let's cover a point about humility from the passage, and then we'll come back to this, whether that was smart or not. We'll see how it plays out. But verses 19 and 20, I think, do talk to Paul's humility. Uh, It's something that Paul understood with his exchange with Jesus. He understood that Jesus is Lord and Paul is servant. Same with your relationship when you're saved. Jesus is the Lord, you're the servant. Live under that authority. And we must believe it will be of an importance to the crowd that he is speaking to, or he wouldn't necessarily bring it up. He confesses to Jesus that he is ill-fitted to testify for Jesus because of all that he did to try and persecute the believers of the way. Or as Jesus stated on this road to Damascus, that Paul persecuted Jesus himself. Acts 9, where I wasn't going to go, verses 4 and 5, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul settled down the crowd of how he, or by talking about how he persecuted the way. And now he's telling them that he was wrong, that he wishes that he didn't. They're in the same boat as he was. He was persecuting Jews, or persecuting Christians. He's being persecuted as a Christian. He now knows that was the wrong way. Therefore, they should now know it's the wrong way. Jesus was always the one being persecuted. Paul is in front of him, but Jesus is the one being persecuted. This is how Jesus is in every element of this defense. So Jesus has an answer to Paul about this trance and saying they're going to persecute you in Jerusalem, and he tells him, I'm going to send you off to the Gentiles. And he does for a couple of years. Paul's out ministering to the Gentiles. Speaking to the Gentiles had two purposes, I think, in, in this defense. is a twofold meaning. One, uh, we in the audience, we get to see it because of reading it, and the audience who heard it get to see the wisdom and sovereignty of Christ. Christ's purpose would be filled and he could use anybody with any past that he chooses to fulfill it. It also serves to inform the crowd what Paul thinks of Gentiles. Paul didn't like them when he was persecuting them, remember? But now he's ministering to them. You know, he's up on this charge that he brought a Gentile into the synagogue. He didn't, by the way, but it's totally reasonable to think that he would. And maybe at another time he did, because he cares about the Gentiles. He was assigned to the Gentiles, and the assignment wasn't, oh, I gotta go deal with these people that I really don't even like. No, Jesus turned his heart. So so it's not just he doesn't Paul's not looking at a Gentile, he's not looking at a Jew, he's looking at a person who has a heart, and Paul wants that heart turned to Jesus. He knows it is the way. Are you seeing the constant duality of Paul's testimony, his defense? He is defending himself, and he's defending the way. He's at once telling a history of his testimony, and at the same time he's testifying to the grace, the wisdom, and most importantly, the authority of Christ. I think the Jews listening had figured it out. Paul was talking to them about them, about how they are in that same boat as him. When we're witnessing to Christ, we're prayerful that there will be a positive response. And I'm sure Paul was just as prayerful. But the way isn't easy. It's gonna happen to you, it happened to Paul. You're not always gonna get that acceptance from your audience. We're gonna see here what happened to Paul and 
I'm hoping you're not putting chains and being stretched out and being beaten over it. But you will be persecuted. And you can expect it. And you can find joy in it. Because you're doing it for the sake of Christ. So Paul is going to be, his hand is going to be forced. He's going to switch. He doesn't really switch away from Christ, but he's going to switch in what authority that he's appealing to. And this time he's going to appeal to his authority as a Roman. Luke records the crowd's reaction as, up until this word, they listened to him. They, in, they ended their hush. You know, the, the hand wave, the talking in Hebrew, it didn't have enough impact anymore. And it was all on this word. Well, what word? Was it the whole testimony being the word? Or was it the mention of that word Gentile that really revved them up again? Or do we blend those two and consider that the problem for the crowd is Paul's testimony of Christ's authority? And why is it a problem? Because that authority is protecting Gentiles. Can you imagine? I mean, they were none too happy about the Gentiles. Even a Gentile entering their synagogue was enough for them to, to think about beating to death the man who brought him in there. Again, he didn't even do it. But, you know, they, they got pretty jacked up because Paul supported a race that they didn't like. What a bunch of racists. That they would hold ill will towards somebody who was supporting another group that they didn't like. That would never happen today. No, no, it just, it, it hasn't happened since the 60s. I remember the 60s. We were all about love. And there were huge strides made against racism, against prejudicial thought. We, we learned not to go there. And quite honestly, it had a big impact in my life. I'm the son of a man who struggled with racism all of his life. And he, I know what it looks like. And he was a good man. But he had that problem. He had that struggle with sin. He would admit it. He would never say that I am sinless. And as much as you don't want to sin, it grabbed him. It's a difficult thing to deal with sin. You imagine dealing with sin without Jesus Christ to help you through it? Racism does exist. And it exists in people. And it is wrong. It is sinful. It is judging in ways that belong to God. It's God's job, not yours. It's a sin that has had consequences for years and generations upon generations. I'll try this analogy. You've probably heard the expression, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Ah, but a gun was involved, right? Race, religion, politics, social or economic standing, none of those cause division. People cause division. Okay, the, those are just the excuses. They're the rallying Christ. They're the gun. Okay, but it's the people. Christ has authority over people. Let Christ's authority be the boss. Let it rule your life. Let it point out the sins. Let it get you through the sin. Let it turn your heart. People dividing people makes no sense. Titus 2, we were looking at it last week. Generational 
goodness that the church is run by. But at the end of that same chapter, verse 10 11 say, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So when I teach that racism, social economic division, whatever the division is, it's not my words. I believe them. It's the word of God. It's sinful. It's a warped mind. Don't go there. I was telling Tim, I, when I write a sermon, there are pieces of it that I write in red. And if I'm going to run out of time, I don't go there. I just leave the red part out. That was the red part. <laughs> so I've said enough about division, and I want to get back to authority. Well, no, I, I haven't said enough about division. Christ divides. You've heard it said. And people will use that and say, yeah, but what about Christ? He divides. And he does. They're right. He says it in his word. He's going to divide the wheat from the tares. He's going to divide the sheep from the goats. But what's the difference? He has the authority. He can judge, and it'll be righteous judgment. And there will be only one thing that he judges on. Sin. Not the fact that you've done it, but whether you've been forgiven or not. There will be people that hold super precious to that sin. They won't let it go. They love it. It rules them. And it'll be their death. Then there's others that hold precious to the blood of Christ. And to them, they'll have eternal life. They will be with God united forever. Okay, now I'm done. Ah, we were talking about Roman authority. Um, verse 24 through 25 is it, amazing. It's this flogging thing. Uh, in the response to the crowd, the, the crowd's all jacked up. You know, they're throwing up their cloaks. They're flinging dust in the air. They're going to go after Paul again. So, kind of a smart thing. The tribune grabs him. In, he's still in chains. They drag him inside, and they're going to examine him. And how are they going to examine him to find out the truth of how he was get, why he was getting beaten? They're going to beat him. It's great. I mean, what sense does that make? I, I don't know, but that's what they're going to do. We'll, we'll beat the truth out of him. Well, that's what the crowd was doing. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, But something changes this. Paul appeals to his Roman authority. At the mention of his Roman citizenship, the whole scene changed. The centurion steps in and stops the examination. Have you ever noticed, because I had not until studying this passage, that centurions hold a favorable spot in the Bible? They're never talked of poorly. You might think, yeah, but they're always arresting people. It's like, no, read closely. It's not the centurions doing that. The centurions might be at the foot of the cross saying that this man is surely the son of God, making a confession to Christ. But he, that centurion, he had an assignment that day. And the assignment is really cool to me. Something that Peter couldn't figure out for a very long time was that Christ had to die. That he had to be sacrificed for our sins. And what was this authority that the centurion was given but to guard that cross, guard this Jesus Christ to make sure nothing happens to interrupt the sacrifice that happened that day? It's the authority that Christ gives, seen in the centurion, that allowed the church to go forward. It's, it's goosebump time. I mean, it's fantastic. And this is not the only place that happens. Matthew 5, 
verses 8 through 13, or Matthew 8, excuse me, verses 5 through 13. And I'll read it. You can turn it there, turn to it if you like. Matthew 8, 5 through 13, speaking of the faith of a centurion. Now we, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, or replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who, were followed, those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done, for you have believed. And the servant was healed at the very moment. Later, also in Acts 27, there's a shipwreck. And everybody on that ship is terrified, and their solution was, let's throw Paul overboard. (laughs) Paul is always in the middle of it. But what happened? A centurion comes to the rescue and said, no, this is not going to happen. And Christ's church advanced. What's going on with that? And, And where I've landed is that this picture of authority given by God is what we're supposed to watch and why Christ doesn't put that authority or why Christ does not allow centurions to have the negative light because they're using God-given authority in righteous ways. Maybe in the light of this goodness of authority, we can bring ourselves a deeper realization of the goodness and blessing of 2 Corinthians 10, which reads, and is speaking of Jesus, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus Christ is the head of all authority. So when we see authority and we're tempted not to come under that authority, we have to think about that. And what does it mean? What does it mean to us? If that authority is working in a way contrary to Scripture, I think you raise your hand and say, wait, something wrong here. And it can be questioned. It doesn't mean you get to dismiss that authority means you get to question it. We, we got a lot of stuff going on right now. Am I going to wear a mask? Am I not going to wear a mask? Am I going to get a vaccination? Am I not going to get a vaccination? Am I, you know, just, just so many things that just frustrate the heck out of me. So I'm with you if you're thinking these things. But there's an authority that is telling me to do it. So what am I going to do? I hate my mask. I hate seeing things going on that separate people. But I'm going to follow the authority and I'm going to question it. Okay, through the questions, maybe the authority will change their mind. Maybe Christ will move on that authority and change what the authority is saying or change the authority themselves. But it's not for me to rule against authority. It's going to be a very difficult time when it comes down to, say, a life and death death situation. And all I can say is I'm going to live for Christ or I'm going to die for Christ. It's, It's big, deep stuff. I appreciate that. But it's what the Scripture is teaching. You know, Paul's brought to the tribune 
by the centurion, or at least it's interrupted, and say, wait, what are you guys doing? Don't you know he's a Roman citizen? And what an impact this makes. At the discovery of, Christ, of Paul being a Roman, verse 29 sums it up. It says, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. Made a big difference. He played that Roman card at just the right time, didn't he? Yeah, that, that Roman positional authority that Paul had was bigger than the tribune's authority. And I might add, as the head of all authority, Christ's authority was even bigger. And I think it was being used. So what does all that mean to us? Well, it means that Christians can claim the authority of Christ. Christ has the authority of ownership and of omnipotence and every other attribute that he has and can use those in a Christian's life. When you live in Christ, when you walk with him, when you are obedient to what he asks of you, you are allowing him to use his authority through you and for his purposes, not your own. Now let's consider our own authority. Okay, do we have a lot more than we know or use? Do you know what your authority is? Some, but not every authority, will need to be used in most situations. There's one thing that I that I hope you walk out of here knowing. So, and, and it is this. There is one greater than all others, one authority, that is, that is greater than all others, and I hope you know that you have it. You have it in Christ. He is there for you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Spirit will guide you to Christ's use of authority. Here are two of the biggest and to me the clearest examples of his authority. The first is evangelizing. Not one of us, Christians or not, has the authority to convert souls. Only Christ does. That's it. Just his authority alone. But the gun was involved. You're the gun. Christ's authority will save all of you who were saved. That's what saved it. But I hope you can recall the person, the gun that was involved and what they said that made you stop and listen to Christ. Okay, so be that gun. Be loaded. Be ready. Be set to fire because Christ is going to use you and we want you to be ready. And the other one is judgment. We're going to be asked to judge many things in our lives. Follow the pant line in your socks. That's what I was taught. I can do that one without Christ. I'm going to judge to wear blue. Oh, follow the pant line or darker, I think, is the rule. Uh, I'm going to wear dark socks today because I wore dark pants. Fine. You know, I, don't, I didn't pray about that for minutes on end to decide to pull the dark socks out of the drawer. That's all that's in my drawer, by the way. But it gets bigger than that. I mean, you know that. Life is going to set you up to try and discern between one thing or another. And some of those things you're going to be able to discern without Christ. But what's the tipping point? How do you know when you're judging on your own or whether you're supposed to be running off as quickly to prayer as possible? There's two answers. One is run off to prayer as quickly as possible. Daily, unceasingly, do it so you will be ready when it's time to judge. But the other thing is, when you're at that tipping point that you need to depend on Christ rather than yourself, and you don't know whether that tipping point is over here or over here, my advice to you, trust in Christ, and he will show you the tipping point. And then when it's way over here to 
no, it's my socks. Then you're going to be fine. But as soon as you're not sure, that's the message. That's when you need to trust in Christ. That's where you may delay your, your, uh, your answer or, or how you're going to deal with the judgment in that case. Uh, and if that's what it takes, then that's good. But lean on his authority when you're at that tipping point and you won't go wrong. Think back to Paul's baptism. What were the closing words of Ananias? It's in verse 16, calling on his name. Okay, to the believer, calling on the name of Jesus is to be used often and in complete reference for what you are doing. It is giving up all other authority and control over to the situation, to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and to his will. So what are some other authorities you possess that when you give over to Christ, he may choose to use? How about your influence? Do you have influence over others? Um, maybe it's that of a, of a spouse, or maybe a parent, or maybe the child of a parent who is aging and has no choice but to trust one, and they trust you. You would have influence in that situation. Maybe it's your job that grants you authority. Maybe you're a supervisor. Maybe you own your own business. That's authority. Okay. I mentioned things in the opening. A teacher, a mechanic, a judge, law enforcement. Those are all positions of authority. How are you going to use them? If we spend a good amount of time in prayer and reflection on the authority assigned to us, we have a better chance of using it with the or for the purposes that Christ intends. And you gotta do that in prayer. Turn it over to Christ. Know that it's his. And take the pressure off yourself. It's not yours, it's his. And he will judge righteously and correctly. So here's my challenge to you. You got an assignment. And it's due at 12 o'clock. You've got a half hour to get it done. When you're out in that courtyard, or on the lawn, or if there were people at home that apparently aren't hearing this, too bad. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, in the next little while, take the time and talk to somebody about what your authority is. Not necessarily because of what, just the fact that you were put in a position of authority. Caleb, find out what Wendy's is. Wendy, find out what Caleb's is. Each of you, whoever you're talking to, just ask them, where are the areas that you have authority? And let that guide you into, where'd you get that authority? Is that the right place? Is it Jesus Christ himself? And if it's Jesus Christ himself, what does he want you to do with that? That's your assignment. If you don't get all the way past the first question, do that. Where are you put in a position of authority? That's it. That's all I ask of you. I will tell you that if you really want to make me feel good, I can walk by your conversation and overhear you doing it. I mean, that would really excite me. So, authority comes from Christ. Christ is going to use it to defend and advance his church. Amen? Amen. I, I come up here so seldom, I don't know how to end. <laughs> but I can tell you that I'm done. So I'm going to say a quick prayer and it'll be over. And then you'll be able to go do your assignment after a song. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the, the ability to uh, hear it freely, uh, be able to discern what's being taught as um, good or bad. But Lord, we don't want to lean on our own understanding. We pray for you to visit us and show us what that meaning is. We want you to define for us where our authority exists 
and where it rests and where it even stops. Uh, Lord, you are the uh, sovereign Lord of many things, including authority. We ask that sovereignty lead our lives. And we ask this through the name of Jesus Christ. We call on your name. Amen. Amen.